to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, and the last time we finished up with the prophet Ezekiel. So if you weren't here, if you're new to the church, uh, new to the live stream, uh, definitely go back to the website because Ezekiel 38 and 39, I think, was one of the more powerful chapters of Ezekiel, something that was written 2,600 years ago, is telling us things that are happening today. No way that anybody could know this. You look at archaeology, you look at anthropology, you look at the migration of people, groups throughout the world, Asia, North America, South America, Africa, and um, how could the Bible know these things unless somebody like God, who's outside of time, could tell us these things. So I went through the alignments, the geopolitics of the nations today and where they stand with this battle, and um, you, you once you go through, you, you can't come to any other conclusion that it was, it was written by God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through people. So check that out. Today we're going to be in Luke's gospel. Very encouraging. I'm going to slow it down a little bit and really try to pull out as much as we can out of this gospel. So many questions, so many things, the life of Jesus, the precursors, the prophecies. Oh my goodness, so much stuff. And even Jesus predicts things that are happening today. So this is going to be a fascinating study. And one thing that I found uh, is that today and next Sunday, we're really going to focus on two people. One is Mary and the other one is Zacharias. Two very different people, a cross-section or a microcosm of society. And certainly you can see the applications today. So um, it's going to be a really, really fun time going through this, and we're going to look at it in four parts today. So the first part is the background, right? The background. Well, when you look at any book of the New Testament, why was it written? Who wrote it? Who was it written about? Of course, the New Testament points to Jesus. The Old Testament, especially through prophecies, point to Jesus looking forward. The New Testament, from our perspective, points to Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and where he is today. And we do see some future occurrences when we go through the scripture. But it was penned by Luke. Who was Luke? Colossians 4.14. The Apostle Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. The beloved physician. So Luke was Grecian. And he was the only, as far as we know, Gentile uh, writer of the, of the four Gospels. So Luke is, you know, he's a Grecian. He's a Gentile. And again, this is a time when the church, which is hard for us to believe in 2022, uh, was probably 99% Jewish. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The Gentiles kind of came in later. They were a little slow to the gate there. But... Um, so when you, when you start to get these facts in your head, it becomes very interesting. Luke's prologue, right, the runner-up to what Luke says in the first few verses, is the same as his prologue in the book of Acts. So we understand that Luke wrote a two-work series. One is the, the biography of Jesus, right, the gospel of Luke, and also the book of Acts, where the Lord Jesus really starts the early church. And how does he leave the church uh, in whose hands as, he, as he's ascended into heaven? So he's addressing Theophilus, right? This is all very important stuff, right? This is, I always do a background before I go into a, a book. Why are we reading it? Who wrote it? What does it mean? Why did they write it? When was it written? So Luke, in both of these prologues, addresses Theophilus, who we can speculate is, was a Roman, maybe government official, uh, somebody who was also Greco-Roman based on his name. 
Okay. We also can see that Luke was probably the publisher and the, I'm sorry, Luke was the investigator. Theophilus was the publisher of this work. Now, I do make a comparison here because in the third century BC, I love history, especially biblical history. And I always find that biblical history lines up with history because history is history. You can't really make a dichotomy because it either happened or it didn't happen. So in the third century BC, Ptolemy from the Grecian empire, Now, remember, this is B.C., came to the Jews, 70 Jewish scholars, and said, we want you to translate the entire work of the Old Testament into uh, the Koine Greek. So we Grecians, us polytheists, can understand monotheism. So it's a pretty fascinating fascinating thing, and I kind of see a parallel here. I see the Gentile world, the Greco-Roman world, saying, hey, um, can you do an investigation because... We'd like to know about this Jesus, too. Now, there were many Gentiles who had come to Christ. But as we see later in history, it becomes an overwhelming majority. So Luke was a contributor to that. You can see the style of Luke in his details. We're going to look at that. His investigation, his facts, a lot of historical facts to bring the gospel to a prove-it-to-me Greco-Roman world. When was it written? Now, understand there were two works. So it had to be written and it had to be investigated, and it, it had to be the whole completion, especially of Acts, had to be later on in the first century, because Acts is the history of the church with respect to the Roman Empire. So we're looking at A.D. 60s, not 1960s, 0060s, okay? Um, interesting facts about Luke as well. He spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, He was the only one who was with the Apostle Paul when he was condemned under, I believe, was the Roman second imprisonment. 2 Timothy 4.11, the Apostle Paul says about the second Roman imprisonment, Paul's in jail. He says, only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. So, Pastor Joe, why why is that relevant? Because it goes to Luke's character. I'm building a case here, okay? It, It goes to his character because... I don't know, look at your own life. When life gets tough, when people are against you, when you are in, you know, financial straits, etc., who's with you? Who's with you? Right? Probably not all of your Facebook friends. <laughs> Just a few people who are truly your friends. So Luke was with Paul being being condemned to die and Luke being a physician didn't say I don't want anything to do with this guy. You know, I have a career here. He stayed with Paul through that. So to me, that is golden. You know, that is a huge, uh, important point to Luke's character. Why is Luke one of my favorite books? Well, as a police officer, I did investigations for 25 years, and I still enjoy doing it. Amen. So what we want to do now is dispel um, any criticism of the Gospels. And I don't just say, oh, you know, the non-believer. I don't attack them with pejoratives. What I do is I say, well, let's look at the accusation. And again, let's do an investigation. What happens here? So there's two extremes here in the uh, assault on any of the works of the Bible. Well, especially the Gospels. A, collusion. You ever hear that one? Oh, the writers colluded. Well, when you have collusion, you have a carbon copy testimony of everyone. Well, you didn't have that in the Gospels. You had the Synoptic Gospels, you had John, but even Luke has uh, some nuances that are different from the Synoptic Gospels. So there's, there's a lot of detail. These were different writers, different reasons, different skill sets, different crews that they hung with. That's a modern word. Different cultures and different details on the Gospels with no contradictions. Now, the other extreme is, so you got collusion, carbon copy. Then the other extreme is what I just said, gospel contradictions. Now, you can't have it both ways. If you're going to attack the Bible and say there's collusion, then you can't say there's contradictions because collusion is a carbon copy. They're mutually exclusive. You know, I have to laugh that my first year as a police officer, and it really did prepare me for doing this, I believe, is that, you know, a four-year degree, I went to a good college. I start my first year as a police officer. And I get my first big case, right? Big case. And I'm like, wow, this is interesting. And 
there were multiple officers involved, and I go to... Now, remember, I'm college-educated, so I, I think I'm, in the police report, I'm writing a novel. So my supervisor looks at it, and he goes, go back to the report room, this is garbage. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a rough job. But the bottom line was that I was writing it wrong. I didn't understand jurisprudence. I didn't understand the investigatory methods, and I took it on my own to go in a direction that I shouldn't have gone in, again, innocently. So I started to understand how to investigate, how to bring things together, how to look at the evidence, and not to speak about evidence that I wasn't necessarily a part of. Because as you go to court, you get questioned on everything you write on your report. So it was a very, very interesting learning experience, right? Same thing today. People say, if you have a a criticism of the jurisprudence system, you can't have everybody writing a carbon copy report. It doesn't fly. It smacks of collusion. So going back to the scripture, going back to the scripture, there are going to be nuances, especially in everyone's writings. Now, they're going to agree on the deity of Christ, the nature of God. Those are the important things. Are there any historical fallacies? There can't be, okay? But there's going to be nuances to what the people saw and what they experienced. Here's, an, here's another one. So you, you, there's a crime scene. You go to the, the crime scene. You have your victim. You have three witnesses, right? And the three witnesses are from three different walks of life. First, you have your personal trainer. And I say, what did the suspect look like? He's going to give me a body description. Is he an endomorph, an ectomorph, a mesomorph? Uh, you know, how tall is he? How wide is he? Right? What's his body type? That's what the personal trainer with some changes, is going to share with me. Men's haberdashery, right? He's going to look at the, the uh, assailant, and he's going to give me a clothing description. Was he wearing anything on his head? Was he wearing uh, gloves? What type of shoes did he have? Pants, shirt, colors, right? Because this is what he does for a living. The third person who saw the, saw the crime and the assailant is the uh, hairdresser. What is he or she going to tell me? Facial hair color of hair, type of hair, right? These are the types of things, you know, he or she is going to focus on the facial features, uh, what, what's happening in the head, not necessarily remembering the, the body type and the, you know, so again, with some nuances. So it's pretty interesting. Now, when they go to court, there has to be, there's sometimes they call it, it's called sequestering, right? They separate them so they can't share stories. We want an honest testimony from each one of those witnesses. As a matter of fact, and I've testified in many, many courts over 25 years. I actually enjoy doing it. I like testifying. Uh, but a good prosecutor and defense attorney try not to parade a large number of witnesses in a trial. And we've seen some recently, some high-profile ones. They stick with their witnesses. If you, you can't have 10, 12 witnesses that are saying the same, are seeing the same thing. Of course, you know, you have your crime lab people, you have your, um, you know, the, the different forensic people that go up there, usually just one. But when you have witnesses, you can't parade a large group of people because there's going to be nuances and the other side can pick that apart and it could, it could also confuse the jury. So basically, the Bible was written in a way that 2020 or 2022, uh, 21st century jurisprudence would very much approve of. It's masterful. It's brilliant. And they didn't know these techniques back then. They were just honest. So I hope I'm not, uh, you know, again, this is, it's the background, okay? And, you know, I find it incredibly fascinating. Uh, So... You look at a few books. One is Cold Case Christianity, who was a uh, major crimes detective who came to Christ by doing investigations, right? The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, who is a Yale uh, educated, highly intelligent person, investigative journalist. Again, both of these men did not agree about who Christ was. They went on a quest. They used their, their gifts and their talents and their skills, and they actually came to the conclusion over a certain amount of time that Jesus Christ is real. And i got to be honest with you, I, when I first came to a Bible-believing church, that's what sold me. You know, I'm an investigator. I'm sitting in church. You know, I'm a minute de- denomination. Don't even know why I'm in church. Somebody invited me. But I had to say at some point, is this real or is this not? Because if it isn't real, I don't need to be here. I'm, I'm wasting my Sunday mornings. 
So I sort of did like some of these other people. It ministered when the pastor would preach and he would tell me about the Bible and archaeology and history. I'd be like, you know, he, he got my attention. And that's what got me. It, it drew me into a relationship with Christ. Now, there's other things as well. But, okay. So let's, you got all that background? There's going to be a quiz afterwards. All right. So let's jump into Luke's gospel. Verse 1, Luke is saying, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which are most surely believed among us, he's referring to the things of Christ, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers, they were both, of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding or, alternate translation, accurately followed all the things from the very first to write you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So this is the prologue. This is Luke in both of these books speaking to Theophilus, the reason, the method of why he's sharing these things about Jesus Christ. So two is Luke and Theophilus. And we talked about the relationship. But what is Luke openly saying to Theophilus? Verse 1. Many have set a narrative or a declaration regarding Christ that we believe. And, verses 2 through 3, they were eyewitnesses. Now, sometimes I share this with those that I know and love that don't believe in Christ. And they give me a hard time about the gospel writers. I'm like, that's okay. I can give you as equal or more Greco-Roman historians who also attest not only that Jesus lived, but because they didn't understand miracles and they weren't believers, they said that Jesus did what they called magic. How did he do that trick? That guy was in the, in the, in the grave for four days. How does anyone do that trick? They didn't know because they didn't understand the supernatural. So, There's corroboration here, okay, the witnesses of the believers and the unbelievers who still wrote about Jesus and said, can't figure it out. As a matter of fact, uh, Josephus Flavius, who was a Roman historian, uh, he was a devout Jew turned Roman historian, said there was a man called Christ. If it be lawful, I remember this, right? Uh, Because I read it. If it be lawful to call him a man, for he did great signs and wonders. So here's Josephus saying, I don't believe, but there's something to this guy because he did things that were miraculous. So corroboration, very important. Okay, I'm going to get the, the whole thing isn't going to be like this. I just have to, this is why the, the, the first teaching is so important because it sets the foundation for the rest of the book. Okay. All right. So he says, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to go all over this all over again yet again, and make sure you know, he says, the certainty, and I looked it up, which can also mean the security of it. So basically, Luke is saying, I'm going to make an ironclad case for this Jesus, okay? Now, my speculation, this is just my opinion, is that Luke knew the Greco-Roman culture so well. They were the educators. They were the scientists. They were the philosophers. They were the psychologists of the culture. Now, don't get me wrong, highly intelligent Jewish people, epidemiology in Luke, um, in uh, Leviticus 13 and 14, expanding universe, all this stuff is in the Bible. So the Jewish people knew the things of the universe and the creation as well, but the Greco Romans were into what I would call sophistry. They worshiped knowledge, which can be a trap. If you ever know somebody so smart, so educated, <laughs> that they don't have any common sense. They're out there. (laughs) They're out there. Uh, So these were the type of people that Luke was trying to appeal to. You want knowledge? You want proof? I'm going to give it to you. Okay? And this is where we get into the study of what's called apologetics. Apologion. It doesn't mean to apologize. People make that mistake. It's a Greek word. And it means a courtroom-style defense. Right back to jurisprudence. Okay. Verse 5. Now let's get into the meat of this. We're going to start with Zacharias, the priest. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife 
was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Notice the detail in Luke, and you're going to see this. Detail, detail, details. And they were both righteous before God, walking in the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Kind of remember, it reminds me of Abraham and Sarah. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. If you remember when we did the study of the temple, the larger area, there were the three artifacts and one was the altar of incense. So the priest would go by lot and they would go in. It was his turn to burn the incense, right? And it was really sort of symbolic of of the prayers of the people towards God. And lo and behold, an angel shows up, right? And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. So in um, European culture, you see all these kind of cute little paintings of these chubby little angels with their wings and curly hair, and they look like they're two years old. But real angels, that's nice, fanciful. But if you met an angel and you really knew the word of God, you'd be a little concerned because they do God's bidding, and sometimes they have to right wrongs in society by force, sort of like God's you know, quasi-police military force. So, guess, so he's upset. He sees this. And he's a, he's a righteous man. He's a holy man. He sees the angel. He's troubled. So I like to get all these details out. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will dr- be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. I'll get back to that. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 17, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet Elijah. This actually comes uh, as a fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5, and 6, continuing on. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. It's a nice way of saying it. And the angel, who's probably a good husband, and the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. It's pretty awesome. Expect the miracle, right? For he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And so it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. So back in those days, it's different in American culture, right? We have a a, a huge cultural shift. Uh, More people are choosing, especially young people, not to have children. And that's their choice. It's, It's not right or wrong. But in those days... You know, if you couldn't have a child, uh, they would associate it with that God didn't bless them. Okay, so I have to go back, cultural shift, and explain some of the things, why these things said, and that's why that was said. So three out of four is the prophecy of John the Baptist's birth. Verses 5 through 10 gives us details about the priest, Zacharias, and his wife, Elizabeth. Verses 11 through 17, the angel appears in the temple while Zacharias is doing his priestly duties, and he gives him really good news about a son that they are going to have. Now, it wasn't received um, with cartwheels and, you know, 
I be- he said you're going to have great joy. And I, I doubt, I, I believe, strike that, I believe it was a learning curve over time when it really sunk in because they were a little bit in disbelief that they were thrilled among beyond thrilled that they were going to have this baby boy. Uh, but I wonder, was this an old prayer that maybe when they turned 60, I'm just throwing that number out there, 50s, maybe more, did they pray, 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 and then just stop praying and say, well, we're both older. Between the two of us, somebody is going to have a failure to be able to cause a conception, right? And it was an old prayer. Was it a delayed answered prayer, right? And can't we go through that too? Do you ever pray for something? Listen, I prayed, I've prayed for things for decades. Um, not everything I pray for comes to pass. And sometimes when we pray, and it's just a time thing, months, years, you just kind of grow weary, you know, and you're like, I don't understand. I'm praying for this and I'm praying and it's just not happening. Sometimes we can erroneously believe that God forgot about us. And I'm going to tell you something. You've been a Christian long enough. There will be a time where you feel that. Now, it's a feeling. If we are in Christ, God never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's always with us. He just, I just look at things sometimes and if my prayers aren't answered, I think to myself, well, God knows more about this answered prayer than I do. Or, or this is the, the wild part that maybe the delay in time that God has a better plan delaying it, that if it gets answered now versus five years from now, I don't know, but he knows. So we have to, we have to leave that up to him. But I'm, I'm, I'm starting to believe that no doubt Zacharias and Elizabeth, they, they got married. They were young, you know, looking forward, you know, when you're young in your 20s and, and teens and don't, everything's in front of you. But over the years and every decade that passed by, that prayer about having a child just wasn't answered. I don't know. Did they give up hope? Verses 18 through 25. You know, we can look at the people in the Bible. They were just like you and me. They had their... Sadness. They had their difficult times, right? And what I, here's another thing how you know this is true. When you read the scripture, it doesn't give you a perfect picture of everybody. It gives you a picture of people that were righteous and blameless that still had doubt. And see, that's why you can, you can hold on to this faith because it's real. It's not made up. None of these people were perfect. And the ones that thought that they were, God couldn't use because they were too filled with themselves. So verses 18 through 25, Zechariah's response of unbelief to the angel, it doesn't go very well, does it? He is immediately struck with temporary muteness. And it begs the question, when we read about Mary, and she's sort of similar, has like she's not sure how all this stuff is coming together, right? She knows about biology and stuff, and she has some questions too. But why is it that Zechariah seems to receive sort of a harsh punishment But Mary, when she expressed doubt, does not. Hey, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Somebody did ask that question. Because Mary was, now check this out. Mary was probably, I guess what you would call back then, a plebeian, a peasant girl, who maybe didn't have a lot of opportunities for an extensive education, not only in regular education. It wasn't like the United States or some of these countries today, um, but also not maybe extensive education in God's word. And Zacharias was a priest. He should have known better. Amen? Amen. (laughs) So there's this sort of this principle, and it has to do with the amount of light you receive. And the light is a spiritual light. So Zacharias was able to be educated. Zacharias probably had the scripture memorized. Zacharias um, was, was privileged in the things he was able to do to serve the Lord. So the doubt didn't go over very well with him. And this is what I love about the scripture. God is a fair God. So here you have this young girl who doesn't have the same opportunities. And she's being handled with kid gloves. Where Zacharias is like, you should have listened to me the first time. Now you're not going to be able to speak. Well, the good news is that Zacharias does get his voice back. Now, again, 
I don't know the answer to these questions, but was he a priest going through the religious motions? Uh, you believe me, you don't have to look very far to find someone in clergy or somebody with a title who's going through the motions. They've been doing it too long. They've strayed away from God. They've made it something other than about God and about Christ. And they've become stagnant. As a matter of fact, if you read Jewish sources on the first century religious system, Jewish sources, they'll tell you that it was corrupt. So Zacharias was righteous, but he was operating under, under auspices of those that were not doing the right thing. Did it cause him to be burnt out a little bit? Did he really seek the things of God, but he was like, probably thought to himself, none of this stuff is going to change. Was he getting stale in his faith? Was he get, now, because he was righteous, Abraham was righteous. We see this in Romans 4. Because he trusted and believed in God, which I also believe that Zacharias did. But it doesn't mean he was sinless. It doesn't mean he was sinless. So, and we can, we can be, we can live that dichotomy. We could be believers in Christ. We're going to heaven when we die. But we struggle with certain things on this side of eternity. We backslide. We, we mess up. You know, we get stale. Is he any different than what could possibly happen to you and me? I don't think so. Right? Why do we volunteer? Is it a routine? Is this something we do? Why do people even come to church? Why do they even watch on the live stream? Hopefully it's because they love the Lord. They love the Lord. I have to say that if there's anybody who comes to church or watches on the live stream and they, and they give money and they, they volunteer because they think they're going to work their way to God, it doesn't work like that. You have to have a relationship with Christ. Amen? All right, everybody's awake this morning. Good stuff. So, sadly, sadly, some have considered serving God a burden. Today, right? They can, it's serving God as a burden. But they have plenty of time and energy and money to spend in the world. That's something wrong with that person, not with the word of God or not with serving, right? And sometimes we just have to get our priorities straight, I even look at the whole thing with COVID was a tremendous challenge. I was pulling my hair out when it first came out. I'm always on the CDC website trying to keep the, the church safe and to balance safety and nobody infecting other people in the church with, um, with doing what the Lord calls us to do, to assemble, to pray with each other, to love each other. It was a challenge, but history tells us it can be done. Others have quit. They've, they've quit. They've, they've exited ministry. They've closed down their churches because of COVID. You know what I'm saying? Um, listen, I said it was, it was an easy prediction. I said that when this is over or when we get towards the end of it, you're going to see an avalanche of mental health crises, addictions. I said all these things. And you know what? Sometimes I like being wrong and I wish I was wrong. Because I felt that our leaders were not balancing the, the physical safety with people's emotional health. And now we're having to go backwards. A lot of changes of mind with opening schools and, and getting kids together, right? So there's a lot to this, you know? I mean, when the world starts to come apart, we don't pack up our toys and go home. We roll up our sleeves and engage the culture. Because we're supposed to be the ones with the answers, you know, there's a lot to this. Verse 15, we also see that in that dispensation where it's still, so check this out. In this period of time, you have the Old Testament and John is sort of a prophet in between. He's sort of in between the Old and the New Testament, right? He's the transition, John the Baptist, who's, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, their baby boy is going to become John. He's going to grow up to be John the Baptist. And he's sort of this transitional prophet that starts to bridge the gap between the old and the new covenant and to herald the, the welcoming of Jesus, the Messiah. And in this dispensation, it was unusual for somebody to be filled with the Holy Spirit in their mother's womb. Usually it was a, the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a sealing yet like we see in the New Testament. It didn't happen yet. But here it happens. Very powerful. And we're going to talk about John and his methodology where some people said, well, that's a little harsh. This guy was filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was harsh because the culture had hard heads 
and they needed somebody to knock on the door and saying, hey, you're going in the wrong direction. I see that in our culture today. So he avoids strong drink, uh, which means he probably took a Nazarite vow, which is a special consecration to God. And in verses 16 through 17, he would reconcile people to each other and to God, which is a powerful ministry. And he would come in the spirit of Elijah. And if you understand and you read the Old Testament, you know who Elijah is. He was a wonderful, well-loved Old Testament prophet, you know. And I got to tell you something today, we, we have to start reconciling people, you know, just loving people, just understanding them, just listening to them listening to them because we have a whole culture that's eating itself, you know, fighting against each other. I mean, if we can't divide people on gender, race, now we divide people on vaccination status. I mean, it's just insane what's going on. Where's the leadership? You don't do that to the people you're supposed to be representing. So I believe as Christians, we we have our work cut out for us. We talked about this at the men's group. Just being a good listener could be something that helps someone to 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 not be so on edge and to consider the things of God. Amen. Verse 26, we'll go through uh, to verse 38, and that'll be good for the first part of Luke, and then next Sunday we'll continue with it. Uh, So verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Wow, that angel is a very busy angel. He's going from one place to the other. To a virgin betrothed to a man, which is, there was three steps of marriage, right? It was like the engagement, the betrothal, and then the actual wedding, where we sort of got, took out the middleman, and we have two steps. But betrothal, you were expected to be, this is going to come into play later, you were expected to be faithful to your, your partner because, because that was considered binding, And then the wedding had a lot of fanfare, and it was very interesting the way they did it. So you see this kind of middle thing, this betrothal, right? So we're going to come back to that. So she's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Now, remember. It's a scary sight to be visited by an angel. (laughs) They probably were daunting, impressive figures. Read Isaiah 6. When Isaiah goes, my wife's favorite scripture, when Isaiah goes before the seraphim and and the Lord, and he's, you know, he's a little unnerved, but he makes it through the experience, right? Verse 29, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Gee, what's coming next? Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus or Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And in his kingdom of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Well, of course, she knew her father, and if she had brothers and cousins and stuff, what that meant was was sexual activity that produces babies. So Mary knew, so I'm going to be pregnant. I'm faithful. I've always been faithful to Joseph. How is this going to happen? I mean, wouldn't anybody else ask the same questions? (laughs) Just like one day, am I going to see the bump? Like, how does this happen? Angel, right? And the angel answered and said to her, see how he's, he's so tender with her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called formerly barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, she comes to the right conclusion, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Neat stuff, isn't it? When you start to pick it apart, it's really beautiful. You know, when you start to do a profile in character with Mary, and and I had the blessing, a few uh, women's... Uh, in the women's groups that we have on Saturday, I was the guest speaker and I taught the women about the life of Mary. I had a great time. 
And I said, you know, I'm going to sprinkle some of my notes through the Sunday's message. I enjoyed it so much. I know about Mary. I've read the Bible, but I never really put it all together in succession. And I really enjoyed it. So she's a remarkable person. Uh, Four out of four is the prophecy of Jesus's birth. Now, in verse 26 through 33, we see the angel Gabriel. Again, he's very busy in this time period. He tells Mary about her son that she's going to have. Verses 34 through 38, Gabriel's more explanatory with Mary with no, with no punishment. He lays out the details to comfort her. And the truth is, folks, God will meet us where we're at. You know what the beautiful thing is? We don't have to be theologians. To be used by God. We just have to be willing. What's your resume? People do that. Well, I'd like to serve, but I, I don't know what I'm good at. Well, let's, let's run you through a few things. Let's see how you do. The fact that you're willing is the requirement. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You don't have to be. Mary was not a theologian, right? And she didn't have to be. It's so important. She also wasn't resistant. She had questions, but she didn't say, oh, no. You got the wrong girl. (laughs) No way. Remember, there's a part in scripture where I believe we're going to get to where there's a woman. Now, this is the religious system. She's caught in adultery. And the religious leaders, as cold as they were, they, they drag her out in front of Jesus. They figure they're going to trap him. And they're going to say the law says that we should stone her. Now, the way they did it was very questionable. So they were trying to push Jesus into a situation where he would pick up a stone and stone her. If you don't know the story, Jesus didn't do it. He pointed out their hypocrisy. Mary knew that if she starts to show and she's pregnant, as pregnant is, and how am I going to explain this to Joseph? How am I going to explain this to my parents? How am I going to explain this to the religious leaders? How am I going to explain this to anybody? Did you ever consider that? She could have said, you've got the wrong girl. I didn't hear anything. And God gives us free will. But you know what she did? She said, let it be according to your word. She's saying to the the angel, I'm going to trust you. I know that you're from God. And I know it's going to be difficult. But I'm going to go with it. Not everything that God asks us to do, as a lot of things he asks us to do, are not easy. But it's the right thing to do. And you'll find that. Well, yeah, you can go on the internet and find all these kooky televangelists and preachers that tell you everything's going to be great all the time and God wants to give you the million dollar home and the cul-de-sac and, and the brand new car and all that's garbage a lot of things that the Lord calls us to do they it stretches us right it builds our character it grows us the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that the eyes of the Lord look to and fro on the face of the earth to find those who are willing that he can show himself strong through is that you is that you I remember even just 20 years ago. Do you want to be the pastor? Nope. I'm here. (laughs) And my wife, um, she dressed me down. And she was right. And a lot of the reason, (laughs) I probably shouldn't share too much, but I was scared. Listen, I knew what I knew. You put me in a police car and, and lights and siren, I'll go gun calls, no problem. Being a pastor terrified me. That's insane, isn't it? You got the one. Hey, most of us would be terrified by that, what you just said. I just was good at doing that. So, you know, th- this is the way it is, folks. God calls you to do something. You got to trust him. And you got to be close to him. Amen? So, here's another thing. If you did a little study on Nazareth, Nazareth was a place that people looked down upon. It had a negative connotation for various reasons. So here's a girl. She's single. She's betrothed. She's starting to show. She's pregnant. She is young. She uh, is not of the patrician class. And she's from Nazareth. Can anything more be stacked against this young lady? I'm sure you can think of one or two more things. Right? So a lot of challenges here. The fact that this actually took place was miraculous in itself, notwithstanding her womb being filled with, uh, how, how, how does God do that? I don't even know. I can't even explain it. But he did it. She could have said, nobody will believe me. That's happened before. People have said, no, Lord, no one will believe me. You know, Gideon was a chicken. He, you know, what, me? 
I'm going to lead an army into battle. He was afraid. He was a scared person, right? But he did it anyway. So what's your limitation? What's your limitation? It's really not a limitation. You've got to trust the Lord. So a few points on Mary is this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 14. So before Mary was even born, centuries before, the Bible prophesied that Christ would be born in her womb. And now she's seen the fulfillment of it. Uh, we know that Mary went on to have other children. She lived a normal life with her husband, as normal it could be when you're raising the Messiah. Uh, things said about her. She's highly favored that the Lord was with her and that she was blessed. And I believe that a lot of this comes down to two things. Number one, her humility. She wasn't arrogant. She wasn't snotty. She wanted to please the Lord. She loved the Lord. And two was her willingness to be used by God. And again, it didn't necessarily feel great. I've seen some kind of, you know, Jesus movies, right, of the Gospels. And there was one that uh, we were watching. I forget what it was called. uh, Jesus, his life or something. And the woman who played Mary was amazing. That was the best Mary I've ever seen. Like her facial expressions. You could see her thinking about when Jesus was at Cana with the miracle with the water into wine. And I I really got into her character. Like how, how did Mary feel during this? You know, I don't really have to discipline him. He never does anything wrong. <laughs> and his brothers, his younger brothers were probably heard, and I don't know if this is true, but, you know, why can't you be more like your older brother Jesus? Maybe that's why they didn't believe at first. Maybe he never did anything wrong and it ticked them off. But when he was resurrected, things started to change. Like, oh, he really was. No wonder he was so good. You know, Ma, we could never follow that, you know. So, okay, let's move on. Um, <laughs> So where do we stand on this today? Are we like Zechariah? Who was righteous, the Bible says. God loved him. But he was getting a little stale in his walk. He was a little weak in the faith department. Are we like Mary? Someone who was maybe a little insecure and unsteady, but she wanted to please God. But when it came to the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, yes, Zacharias had Elizabeth. And Mary had Joseph. But I I really want to focus on Zacharias and Mary. I'm going to go into it a little bit more next Sunday. Uh, But they had such important roles to raise the best, the, the most incredible prophet that ever lived, according to Jesus. And the son of God, God the son, coming into the world to die for the sins of the world. Wow. And we may not be like either Mary or Zacharias. Maybe we're like someone else. We're unique. But don't discount your uniqueness. You know, we're reading reports of those that are walking away from the faith. And I got articles in my office, and and we could ask questions about that. Sadly, many, especially in this world that seems to be so decadent, many, I've found, have walked away from the things of God because it's it's sort of a weird thing. Like thinking things are going to get worse, so I I better have fun. What's your definition of have fun? You know what I'm saying? You know, the world, I got to get what's in the world and, you know, sort of kind of cold to the faith, cold to Christ. We know what he says about the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation. Um, There's a strong need today for those willing to be used by God. The first century, if you do any study on it, was it was also decadent. It was cold. It was the Roman government was cruel. There was constantly fighting between the Romans and the Jews, rioting, destruction. Um, It was a really miserable time. And Jesus came smack dab in that time. And Mary said yes. And Zacharias eventually said yes. And Elizabeth said yes. And Joseph said yes. Will we say yes in 2022? You know, and again, you watch the news, oh, inflation is going to get worse and gas is going to keep going up and, you know, the dollar is going to be deflated and maybe all those things happen. But where are we? If you are called to be a child of God, if you're a Christian, you're from another world. You know, some people probably think that we're from another world sometimes, but we're here to give the good news of that world that's increasing while this world decreases. We're called to be ambassadors, the Apostle Paul says, of that world, the unseen world, the world that's going to be into eternity. 
you know, every single person I meet, whether it's the waitress at when we're having our food uh, delivered or we, you know, the guy pumping gas or the checkout person, you know, I, I look at them and I'm like, Lord, just give me an opportunity. And there's not always an opportunity, but I just want to reach people because everything that you read, everything that you see, all the empirical indicators show that this, is, this country has so much and people are so depressed. It's so sad and it's so hopeless. And, and, and others make their own realities. You know, even the social media and uh, Zuckerberg has this uh, meta thing and you, you could be a dinosaur and you could be whatever you want and you have these, you know, these kind of virtual meetings with people and you have your own avatar and you, you're not even you anymore. You know, the, the push for us not to assemble, to stay home, to be lonely, to be more depressed. Kids don't know what to do. They go to school, their school's open, school's not open. I wear a mask, I don't wear a mask. You know, I go to school and mommy and daddy can work now. I can't go to school. Mommy and daddy are upset because they can't pay the bills. This is what we're dealing with in America. And it's no better in any other country. But I'm not trying to depress you because I go out there. I go out into this world you know, I don't have any more gifts than any of you have. I just want to build that bridge. Jesus did his most love and his most incredible things when he worked with people individually. You know, and again, even in Christianity, in, in cultural Christianity, everything's big, a big show, big this, big that. And then we almost feel like, well, what can I do? They got all that. They have millions of dollars of the big things and the best speakers. God doesn't call us to do that. It's, it's, it's. It's a personal thing. So I want to read the last verse and then end on it. It says, Mary said, it's all done. The angel's probably ready to leave. He told her everything he could tell her. And she says, behold, the maidservant of the Lord. She basically said, you know what, Gabriel? I'm a servant of the Lord. I don't know what my future holds, but I know I'm in a good place. If God asked me to do something and I agree to it. Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, and let it be to me according to your word. Humility and faith. In this world, everything is impossible. But you know what? With God, nothing is impossible. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossroads. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.